Good morning, good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Cornerstone. I get the opportunity to open up God's word with you this morning and continue the series we've been in for about the past month or so in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So if you have a Bible or an app on your phone, please go ahead and open up. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. If you need a Bible, I think some of the ushers, they have uh, just a, a, a copy that they can put in your hands. If you do not own a Bible, we would love for this to be our gift to you. And maybe you can lean towards someone next to you if you need help finding where the book of 1 Thessalonians is in your Bible. But as we get going, uh, I just want to point out to you where we're at at this point as we head into the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. This is really kind of the pivot point, the, the transition point in Paul's letter to the, to the Thessalonians. If you remember that basically all of 1 through 3 is the recap of his relationship with this church. He talks about how he and Silas and Timothy, they came and they spoke the word of God boldly in the midst of much opposition. And he's writing to these Thessalonians who believed, reminding them, when you heard this word, you received it not just as man's word, but as God's words. But then Paul and his companions had to leave. And he says, we kept trying to get back and we couldn't get back. And finally, I was so concerned for your welfare that we just sent Timothy. I was willing to be left alone, sent Timothy. Timothy came back and he said, you're doing good. You're growing in your faith. I'm so excited and that's why I'm writing to you. He takes more than half the letter to recap the history of his relationship with them. This is how personal he felt about uh, the personal affection that he felt toward this church. And at the very end of what Todd showed us last week, in chapter 3, verse 11, this is really where Paul sets up everywhere he's about to go. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, would you guys mind if I can get the, the slides on the back screen as well? And our Lord Jesus, may he direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Beautiful words on their own. And even what, what Paul's doing here is that basically this is like his three points of the sermon he's about to give them. He's gonna focus in on that idea of love in chapter four, verses nine through 12. That's what Todd will take us to next Sunday. And then in chapter 13, he talks about being established, blameless in Holiness Holiness is the main part of 4, 1 through 8 that we're going to look at today. And he says this will happen at the coming of Jesus Christ. And the coming of Jesus Christ is the big point starting in chapter 4, verse 13, basically through the end of the book. This is where he's going to take us and where we're going to go over the next few weeks. But today, our focus is on that middle idea of holiness. And that idea of holiness it's probably a little bit foreign to us. We may be most used to it, like singing it in songs, but what does it mean for our lives? So we're gonna to need to take some time to unpack it. And, and we'll see in this passage the way that Paul illustrates this big idea of holiness in a specific area of our lives. But one of the things I want you to know as we get started is that this idea of holiness, what it means to be holy, it's one of those already not yet things that we talk about in our Christian life. We see in scripture that God, those of us who've come to God through faith in Jesus Christ have been made holy. 
And we see a promise that we just read up here on the screen that at the coming of Jesus, God will establish us in holiness. In chapter five, he'll say that he will make us perfectly, completely holy. And in between that, what God has already done to make us holy through faith in Jesus and what he will do when Jesus returns to make us perfectly holy in that gap is where God calls you and I to join him in the pursuit of ongoing growth in holiness. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to look at as we, as we get into it today. And what I want to do first, this might be a little bit hard to see on the screen because I had to make it small to get the whole thing up there. But I want you to see the way that holiness language goes through the whole, the, the whole part of this section here. We just saw in chapter 3, verse 13, how he talks about being established blameless in holiness. And then he comes in verse three of chapter four and he says that God's will is your sanctification. It looks totally different in English, but it's from the same basic root. God's will is your holiness. But that word there, the reason why I put some of them in green and some in yellow is because the green ones, basically it's a word that refers to the process of growth in holiness. God will establish us in holiness, but his will for us now, you and I, as we learn to walk by faith, is our ongoing growth in holiness. He talks about it again in verse four, that we know how to control our bodies in the ongoing process of holiness. Verse seven, for God has not called us for impurity, but in the ongoing process of becoming holy. And this, verse eight, is why he has given his Holy Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit is not in the process of becoming holy. That's why it's a different form of that word. He is the one who's holy. And he has been given to us to lead us on this process of becoming holy. Does that make sense? You see that there? Now you also see though, that right in the middle there, Paul's gonna address this big concept of holiness in a specific area of our lives. Holiness applies to all of life, and we'll unpack that in a second. But then he lands the plane, he says, here's what this looks like in the area of our sexuality. Sexual attractions and desires and actions. And I would say that this idea of holiness and sexuality was as much of a tension point for the Thessalonians in their culture as it is for us in our culture. But Paul isn't just here to talk about sex. He's here to talk about holiness and what that means for the whole of our lives and then illustrate it in this one way. So the two main questions that we're gonna tackle this morning are these. What does it mean to be or to become holy And then the second one that we'll probably spend a little bit more time on is how does this apply to our sexual conduct? Now, before I move on, let me just say a couple things to those that you were here with me in the room or maybe you're watching at home. And I would just say this, parents, if your kids are in the room with you or perhaps you're watching in your living room and your kids are there as well, um, I'm gonna talk somewhat frankly about what the Bible says about human sexuality. I'm not gonna try to be crass or crude in any way, but I do wanna speak clearly But I do encourage all of us, as a parent myself of four kids, I encourage all of us as parents to take seriously the responsibility that God has given us to help to shape our children's understanding of God's design for human sexuality. And I respect your right as parents to, to, as you pray and seek the Lord, to seek the right way and appropriate times and ways to talk with your children as they see fit. So I would just say this to you. Feel free to ask your kids to step outside the room, go play outside if you're watching from home. Um, If you're in here with your children, feel free. I mean, again, this is one of those ones we didn't have a chance to kind of give you a heads up on this. But uh, if if you want to kind of just step out, 
Come back, listen to it, and then see if it's something that your children are ready for. Um, please do that, but, but feel free to do that as we move on. The second thing I want to say is this. Holiness in our sexuality is a complex issue. And I would say it's best walked through in person, in personal relationship, through a series of conversations, not just one sermon. I would say, in some ways, a preaching platform like this is one of the most limited ways to address the complexity around sexuality and sexual sin and holiness. There are so many ways in which our inherited sinfulness from Adam, our own experiences, our own desires and actions help to complicate this whole issue of sexuality for us. There's so much pain and struggle, and I am not going to be able to deal as much as I would want to with all of those different facets. So my hope today is just to do this. I want to explain to you the big pictures of what I think Paul is communicating in this passage as a way to lay a foundation for future conversations. And, and in that way, I want to direct you to a couple of things. One of the things we're going to look at in a few minutes I want to direct you to our, uh, our doctrinal statement that's on our website. If you go to cornerstonecine.com and you click on about, you'll find our full doctrinal statement. In our section on humanity, which is actually one of the longest parts of that statement, we have a section on, on sexuality. I'll show you a few quotes, but I would encourage you to, to see that as well. Another thing, if you didn't know it, we have a podcast, uh, the podcast that both has our sermons. One of the things we started doing in the fall was myself and Todd and Spencer McCush. Um, we started just having a series of conversations kind of based upon the sermons, but then more thinking through, okay, what does this look like in our lives, in our relationships, and within our local church? And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to go into more detail on, on specifically what this looks like in, in the real-life situations in regard to our sexuality in much more detail than I can do here. And I would encourage you uh, uh, over the next couple of weeks, feel free to, to check that out as well. I would also love to recommend two resources to you, two books that I've found to be helpful uh, in regard to this. They're kind of hard to see because one of them is such a white cover, it's, you can't tell what it says. One is a book by Paul Tripp that came out a couple years ago called Sexual, Sex in a Broken World. Another one is written by Christopher Yuan. And it's called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Both of these are, are great. Um, uh, I, I, I've read more of heck, Holy Sexuality than I have of Sex in a Broken World so far. But that one's been recommended to me even by a couple other elders. And so I would highly recommend those to you as books that can go into much more detail than I will be able to over the rest of our time this morning. So as we move forward, first question. What does it mean to be or to become holy? What's this whole idea of holiness about? I'm going to try to move through this one a little bit more quickly to save us time to really go, okay, what, is sexuality, what does holiness look like in our sexuality? But let me give you two main ideas. When we want to understand what holiness is all about, here's two main ideas. Number one, God is holy. He is holy. And second, the God who is holy also makes holy. He makes other people or things holy. The basic meaning of the word holy, if you're unfamiliar with it, is set apart, separate, distinct. It is first and foremost a, a, a way to distinguish, a way to speak about how one thing is different from something else. So for instance, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has this vision and he's brought into the very presence of God, and the seraphim around God's throne are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
They are saying that God is set apart. He is different. He is distinct. When we think about God's holiness, we are speaking of every way in which he is different from and greater than us. Perhaps you've done a study in the past on like the attributes of God, his love, his power, his faithfulness, and so forth. And you might think holy is just another one of the, on that list of attributes, but one guy said it really well when he said, holiness is not an attribute of God, it is the perfection of all of his attributes. God is love, but his love is different from and greater than our love. His is a holy love. Amen? God is faithful. He keeps his word. He keeps his promises and he's faithful to those to whom he makes those promises. And his faithfulness is different from and greater than ours. His is a holy faithfulness. Amen? So God is holy. But God also makes holy. We see throughout scripture that God takes people or things and creates distinctions distinguishes, sets them apart, and he always does this for a specific purpose. The first time in scripture that we come up against this word holy is actually in Genesis chapter two, the very beginning of Genesis chapter two. Take a look at this. The end of the creation account, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day not because he was worn out and tired, but to enjoy the wonder that he had made. He rested from all the work that he had done. Verse three, so God blessed that seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. He created a distinction between the seventh day and the six days that preceded it. The six days that preceded it was the work of creation. The seventh day was the rest of enjoying it. And he made that day holy, distinguished, set apart for that purpose of joining in rest. So then we come to Exodus chapter 20, a very famous passage in the Old Testament where God gives the 10 commandments to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And in the midst of those 10 commandments, he comes back to this idea of the seventh day, the Sabbath day. And he says to them in verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God made it holy. But he calls the Israelites to keep it holy. What does it mean to keep it holy? Well, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. That phrase could be understood in Hebrew as either belonging to him, it's his. It's God's Sabbath. And it's also a day that you use unto God. You, You keep him as your focus in the midst of that day and seek to use that day for the purpose that he set aside for it. On that day, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or even the sojourner, the exile, the immigrant who is within your gates. Why? For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God made that day holy. He called the people of Israel to keep it holy, to use it according to God's holy purpose. Does that make sense? But if you don't think that God is trustworthy or you struggle to trust God, it will be hard to believe that this command is for your good. It will be hard to rest one day out of every seven 
Because what if? What if something goes wrong next week and I can't work and I can't catch up? Not only that, what about my competitor? If I just stop and rest, I'm basically giving him all the business that I could have made. But through this command, God was calling Israel, will you trust me that my design is good? Will you trust me to provide for you that Sabbath rest is good for you? Will trust me and use that day for its holy purpose? And this is a place where we can drop down real quickly and think about this in relation to our sexuality. We'll talk more about this in a second, but what we'll see is that God's design for sexuality in marriage between one man and one woman is good. Good. It is beautiful. But the question is, will we trust God that his design is good and then seek to use our sexuality according to God's holy purpose? You see, because being set apart for a purpose didn't just apply to that one Sabbath day. The Israelites weren't just called to keep the Sabbath holy. They were called to be holy themselves. The, the very first, or the chapter right before this, God speaks to the people of Israel before giving them the Ten Commandments, and he says, here's what I'm doing with you. You saw how I rescued you from Pharaoh in Egypt. I bore you on eagles' wings. I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. It all belongs to me. All peoples belong to me, but I will set you apart. I am setting you apart, making you distinct and different as my treasured possession. And why? Verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The role of priests in Israel, they basically, they were the connection between God and the people. They represented God to the people and they represented the people before God. And God is saying here to the people as a whole, that's all y'all's job to the nations. You collectively are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation who now exists to represent me to the nations. God did not make the people of Israel holy because they were better or more righteous than the nations around them, but because he had a specific purpose to make them the channel of his blessing and salvation to the nations. He's saying, your life was going this way, but I have now claimed you for my own and I have a different purpose for you. This is the way that, that one theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, he put it really well. He said this, to sanctify, to make holy, means that God repossesses persons and things that have been devoted to other uses and have been possessed for purposes other than his glory. And he takes them into his own possession in order that they may reflect his glory. This shaped the totality of the Israelites' life. You now live in relationship with God to represent him to the world, and that shapes all of your conduct. But sadly, if you're familiar with the story of Israel in the Old Testament, they repeatedly fail to live according to God's holy purpose for them. They are far more often occupied with wanting to be just like the nations around them than distinct from the nations rather than reflecting God's character and faithfulness and love to those around them they flip it around and make it about themselves but 
The amazing truth of the gospel story is this. Where Israel failed to be God's holy people, Jesus succeeded. He was victorious. He is the holy one of God who perfectly lived in relationship with God, who perfectly reflected God's character to us so that we might know who Jesus, who God is. And then ultimately through his death and resurrection, Jesus has made a way for us to be made holy, for us to be set apart and made distinct, to be adopted as God's children. We've seen that throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, right? All the family language. We are God's kids now and brothers and sisters together. And that is a holy calling over all of our lives. We have been repossessed by God for his purpose to reflect his glory with all of our lives. Now, let's come back to 1 Thessalonians with that big picture understanding of holiness and let's drop into what he says, what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 about how this relates to our sexuality. That second big question, how does this apply to sexual conduct? The first thing I would say is this. Look at the way this section begins and how it ends. Chapter 4, verse 1. Look at the way that Paul frames what our lives are to be about now. Finally then, brothers, we ask you, as you and urge you in the Lord Jesus, as we already told you, that you ought to walk to please God. That word ought is probably too soft. It is necessary that you walk to please God, just as you're doing. That's already shaping your life, but your life is now lived focused upon God and seeking to live in a way that pleases him. And then at the end in verse 12 of the passage we'll look at next week, he finishes and he says, do this so that you may also walk properly before outsiders, those who do not know our God. Do you see how he's shaping our lives in the same way that the people of Israel, we live in relation with God to please him and to represent him faithfully to the world around us. God's will is that we walk in a way that pleases him and that reflects his character. So understand this, holiness, what it means to walk in holiness and grow in holiness, it's not about merit, it's not about competition, it's not about feeling superior to other Christians and definitely not about feeling superior to those who don't even know God. Holiness is about acknowledging that now I belong to God. All of me belongs to him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that Jesus died for us so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. Holiness is saying, God, you, all of me belongs to you, and I now live to know you and to make you known to others. That's the big picture that we need to understand this whole discussion of sexuality about. So what does this mean for our sexuality? How do we conduct ourselves sexually in a way that pleases God and properly reflects him to others? Well, there's three specific commands, or not commands, they're more instructions that Paul gives us here in this passage. If you wanna know what it means to grow in holiness in your sexuality, it comes down to these three things in this passage. Look at the first one. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. Have you ever wondered what God's will for your life is? Passages like this really make it clear. Sometimes when we think about the will of God, it's like what job should I take? What person should I marry? Where is my life going? What state should I live in? All of those foggier ideas of what is the will of God for my life, 
We gain clarity on those things as we understand and obey the very clear passages like this that speak of God's will for our life. This is the will of God, your ongoing growth in holiness. And what's the first thing he gives us? That you abstain from sexual immorality. That you be set apart, distinct, separate from sexual immorality. What does sexual immorality mean? Well, the word that that Paul uses here is one that's used frequently in, in the New Testament, and it's the word porneia. It's a very broad term, but something might sound familiar, especially that first syllable, porn. Pornography. The English word that we have for pornography refers to sexually explicit images and and videos and so forth. And it comes from this same idea of porneia. So definitely, at least to start with, pornography definitely fits in the category of sexual immorality that Paul says that we are to be separate from, to abstain from, separate yourself from it. So whether you're looking at pornography on your own and no one else knows it, whether this is something that you do with your friends when you think that no adults are around, whether this has even become something that you've begun to do with your spouse in a misguided way to spice things up, Pornography is a distortion of God's good design for our sexuality and it is harmful. And I speak personally here. A huge part, a a significant theme of my testimony of God's grace in my life is the way that he has redeemed me and continues to redeem me from a compulsive habit of going to pornography from the moment at like seven years old when I stumbled upon it for the first time. I praise God for his grace in my life. But I would say this, porneia, we can start with pornography, but porneia doesn't just refer to pornographic images. It's, it's a blanket term that basically refers to all human sexual actions that are outside of God's design. So if here Paul says that we are called to abstain, to separate ourselves from sexual immorality, an important question is, okay, then what is sexual Morality. What is the good design that God has that we are to move toward as we move away from that which is immoral? Here's a place where I'd love to have a whole other message to unpack that and show you it throughout scripture. But again, this is a place where I think what we've tried to do in our doctrinal statement is helpful. Again, this is available online and even online you'll see, you can just, uh, there's a list of all the references where we, we've kind of si- tried to summarize what we believe biblical truth says. It's pretty handy, you can just float your cursor over it, and it'll take you directly to the passage as referenced. But let me show you the way we tried to articulate. What's the good design? Human sexuality, which includes sexual attraction, desires, and actions, is a gift from God. And it is intended for the pleasure and union of one man and one woman within marriage. Again, on the, on the website, you can see the text where we draw this from. But the Bible talks a lot about the ways that we get sexuality wrong. The things that we try to go after that are outside of God's design that's twisted. And all of those are grouped together in that word porneia. But the Bible also repeatedly comes back to this. The goodness of what God originally designed for one man and one woman to share exclusively with each other within that covenant bond of marriage. 
We see this like in Genesis 2 where it talks about, therefore a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus said, that is good, and let people not separate what God has joined together. Proverbs 5, 1 Corinthians 7, Hebrews 13, the entire book of Song of Songs all extol the goodness, the wonder, the, the holiness of sex as God designed it between one man and one woman in marriage. In particular, 1 Corinthians 7, the first five verses, especially frame sex as something that a husband and wife get to give as a gift to bless each other. That it's not first and foremost about my desire, my pleasure in getting you to give it to me, but it's a means of loving and pleasing and blessing my wife, a way of expressing and encouraging our unity together. And without getting too personal here, if my wife is here, she's ever teaching in children's ministry yet, I can just say this to you. After 16 years of being married to my wife, Jennifer, I can happily say that God's design for human sexuality and marriage is so good. So good. But I can also say that throughout those 16 years of marriage, as much as I've, be, I've come to realize and trust how good and holy God's design for sex is, I continue to battle with temptations and thoughts and desires that go against God's good design. I thank God that I experienced much more victory in that battle over these past 16 years, but the battle continues Nonetheless, and here's the thing, on this side of eternity, man, woman, young, old, all of us will continue to battle with the way that sin has twisted and distorted us sexually. Whether or not you have acted out that brokenness, the root problem lies not first and foremost in our actions, but in our hearts. Remember what Jesus himself said in Mark chapter seven, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery. Again, here's the way we tried to summarize the brokenness of this in our doctrinal statement. As good as God's design is between one man and one woman in marriage, the next part says, however, sin has affected every aspect of human sexuality such that all fallen humans experience attractions and desires and choose to act upon them in ways that are disordered and contrary to God's good intention. And again, on the website, you'll see all the texts where we kind of source that from. But the point is, we may experience different kinds of sexual temptations, but all of us are tempted to express our sexuality in ways that go against God's holy design. There's, there's a silver lining in this because if you feel particularly frustrated in the area of your sexuality and holiness, understand this. No one, believer or unbeliever, gets to simply roll out of bed and just freely express their desires however they want. That will leave, lead every one of us off the cliff if we do so. We all need ongoing sanctification, lining up with God's holy purpose in our sexuality. And that leads to Paul's second point. 
So again, we saw this, his first one. The will of God is our sanctification, our ongoing growth and holiness. And the first point that he gives us is this idea of separating yourself from porneia, all forms of sexual expression that are outside of God's good design between one man and one woman in marriage. And then he says this in verse four. God's will for your sanctification is also that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. He says that we know how to control our body. It's, it's in the present tense in Greek. It refers to continuous action. Not just know, check the box now, I know what to do. But be knowing, be learning, be practicing how to control your body and your sexual desires. One commentator said it like this. He said, purity is not a momentary impulse, but a lesson a habit. It's something we learn as we walk with God over time. And who does Paul say needs to learn this? Each one of you needs to learn how to control his own body. The fault is not with the magazine covers in the grocery store, though that doesn't help. The fault is not, it does not start with what other people may do or bring in our path. It starts with the learning that what God has called us to do is to learn to control our own impulses, our own desires. Each one of us knows, needs to know. Each one of us battles the same sort of reckless, lustful desires as those around us. Again, we're not all tempted in the same ways, but because we're born into Adam and Eve's broken family line, we inherit the same kinds of corruption and distortion in our minds and hearts. We're all broken in our sexuality, even if we experience that brokenness and temptation in different ways. And yet, here's the hope. Paul says that for those of us who trust in Christ, we have a new ability that those who do not know God do not have. The ability to learn to control our sexual impulses, our bodily desires in holiness. To learn to use our sexuality appropriately in honor, he says, in a way that actually exemplifies the honorable character of our Father in the way that we conduct ourselves. God is perfectly faithful. And Paul says his will is for us to express the faithfulness of our God in our faithfulness to each other. God is perfectly self-controlled. He is precise. He is focused. He knows exactly what he wants to do and he does it. Pick a small hobby horse. It's more of a hobby pony, so it's not that big of a deal to me. But I'll say this. This is why we stopped singing that song Reckless Love several years ago. God's love is not reckless, out of control. Yes, it is overwhelming, never-ending, but it is not reckless. And so God calls us to reflect his controlled passion precisely by fighting against what he knows are our reckless loves and desires. This is God's will for us. And this is why he says in verse 8 that he has given the Holy Spirit to us 
to empower us. We do not have the ability to learn this control on our own, but the spirit of holiness has been given to us because God's will is our growth in holiness, and the spirit is there to teach and train and empower us to learn to control ourselves so that we represent God's holy character in our sexuality, whether we're married or single. And again, here's the way we sought to summarize this in our doctrinal statement. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, and only through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians are both called and enabled to seek repentance and holiness in their sexuality and to steward, that means to to faithfully carry out what's been entrusted to us. Your sexuality has been entrusted to you by God and you will answer to him for how you carry it out. So the Spirit empowers us to steward our sexual attractions, desires, and actions in keeping with God's design for human sexuality. There's more in this section of the doctrinal statement where we talk more about what sexual holiness looks like in marriage and singleness. And I would just say in part, it's that even if you're married, you can still commit sexual immorality against each other. What does it look like to be holy in your sexual expression even as husband and wife? I encourage you to read more about that. But earlier, I recommended that book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel by Christopher Yuan to you. If you're not familiar, Christopher Yuan is a man who lived in an openly homosexual uh, identity before he came to know Jesus. And as he came to know Jesus, really tried to grapple honestly with what scripture says. And here's the point. So understand, when he says this, he's gonna say this in stark terms, but these are things that he's personally had to wrestle and grapple with Jesus's call to take up his cross and deny himself. And listen to this. From Genesis to Revelation, in the entirety of the biblical witness, only two paths align with God's standard for sexual expression. If you're single, be sexually abstinent while fleeing youthful desires. If you're married, be sexually and emotionally faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex while also fleeing lustful desires. There's no way out of the battle with lustful, disordered sexual desires, whether married or single. We may not have chosen the path that we find ourselves on. We may envy the path that someone, or someone else is on. But the point is that pursuing sexual wholeness on either path, whether marriage or singleness, can only be done in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And both will involve the continuous battle with sinful temptations and desires. But this is God's will for us. It is no mistake. His will is that we walk with him by faith in this pursuit of becoming holy as he is holy. So that, as I said before, we might please him and represent him faithfully to those around us. And Paul says, holy sexuality involves abstaining from sexual immorality, each one of us learning to control our impulses. And one more, look at this. The will of God is your ongoing growth in holiness. And he says this in verse six. The third principle, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. There is a warning here. Paul speaks using masculine terms, his and brother. But but the language, again, in his culture was meant to encompass 
both men and women within the church. That no one transgress, cross the line with your brother or sister in Christ. That no one wrong, which means to defraud or to take advantage of your brother or sister in Christ in the matter of sexual conduct. Why? Because the Lord Jesus is the avenger in sexual sin. That word avenger doesn't mean like revenge. It means the justice bringer. The one who will bring just punishment to anyone who would take advantage of, abuse, or manipulate others sexually for their own sinful desires. Jesus is the avenger of victims of sexual abuse. So if you have been a victim of sexual abuse from someone else, I pray that these words do give you comfort in the midst of the ongoing pain that you wrestle with. We as your church, we want to know and learn how to walk with you with great gentleness and care and hope. But part of that is this hope right here. Jesus will avenge the wrong that you've suffered. He will bring justice at his coming. Amen? But if you have been the perpetrator of sexual abuse, the abuser, these words should bring you anything but comfort. Jesus sees. He knows. If no one else knows but him, you have not gotten away with anything. And you will answer to Jesus one day. This warning is clear and true when it comes to sexual crime and assault. But let me ask you this. What about when two consenting adults choose to engage in sexual activity that goes against God's design? Jesus is the avenger in those matters too. We see in the Gospels that to lead someone else into sin is a very big deal to Jesus. That's what the serpent did with Adam and Eve in the beginning, in the garden. And that's why Jesus came, to destroy that serpent. Well, yeah, but I mean, the serpent brought the temptation, but Adam and Eve consented. They didn't go against their will. They actually made that decision together jointly to do that. Yes, and that's why Paul says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of humans. Jesus said in, John, in Luke 17 that temptations to sin are sure to come. There's no avoiding it. Even Jesus faced temptations to sin. But then he says this, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. In the gangster movies, this would be, it'd be better for him to have concrete, concrete shoes and go swimming in the pond. This is serious to Jesus. So even when two consenting adults under no coercion or force from each other willingly agree together to violate God's good design for their sexuality, they are leading each other into sin and Jesus is the avenger in these matters. Even if you're by yourself looking at pornography on your computer, you are sinning both against God and that person in those images who has been made by God in his image. 
using them for your own sinful pleasure, even if that person willingly offered themselves for those pictures, which is not always the case, you are still violating God's design for your sexuality and theirs. And if you are married, you are also wronging your spouse. Jesus is the avenger in all these things. Let me put this together for you. Verse six. Look at this, verse six. The Lord, referring to Jesus, is the avenger in all these things. Verse seven. For God, the Father, has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Verse eight. Therefore, don't disregard him because he's given his Holy Spirit to you. Father, Son, and Spirit, our triune God, are all saying, this is my will for your sexuality, and we dare not disregard them. Amen? That's the warning. But here's the hope. No matter how badly you have failed sexually, no matter how you have sinned against others or been sinned against by others, the grace of God that extends to those who come to him through faith in Jesus is greater than all our sin. If you are a follower of Jesus, this same Jesus who is the avenger, the justice bringer in sexual sin is also what Paul said back in chapter one, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Though Jesus was the sinless son of God, he suffered at the hands of evil people. Understand this, the gruesomeness, the, 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 the violation of crucifixion. Jesus was mistreated, tortured, publicly stripped and exposed to everyone for his own shame, to shame him for the sick pleasure of sinful people. He could have stopped it. Yet he willingly endured the shame of the cross in order to bear your shame and my shame and not just carry our shame, but defeat it. He rose again in victory over those who sinned against him and in victory over your sin and mine. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and then on the day of Pentecost, he sent the spirit of holiness, God himself, to indwell and cleanse and empower you to walk in holiness. Remember the already not yet that I said at the beginning. If you are in Christ, God has washed you. He has made you holy. First Corinthians 6 says this emphatically, even in regard to sexual sin. Such were some of you, but you have now been washed and sanctified by Jesus, by the Spirit. God's will for your life right now is your sanctification, your ongoing growth in holiness, even as he knows that you will continue to struggle with your sinful desires. That's why he's given you his spirit. Paul says in Galatians 5, that as we learn to walk by the spirit, we won't gratify the desires of our flesh. That's now, but I wanna remind you, this amazing promise from chapter five. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body, the totality of who you are, be kept blameless. When? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God is faithful even when we're not. He will finish what he has begun in us. 
if you're not a follower of Jesus. Let me finish by talking to you for a second. You've probably heard a lot from me that was either hard to understand or just hard to accept about what God says about your sexuality and mine in his word. But please hear me right now. I speak for all of us here who are followers of Jesus. We do not think that we are better than you. And even if we do, we're violating what our own book says, which is sin. And we're clearly not better than you if we handle ourselves in pride and judgmentalism here. We don't think that we're better than you, but what we do, what we do think is that God is better than all of us. He is the Holy One. We believe that God's design for human sexuality between one man and one woman in marriage till death that they part is good and glorious and beautiful. But we also acknowledge that every one of us battle against desires and temptations to use our sexuality outside of that holy context. And right there, in that gap between what we know to be true and good and beautiful about God and his design for us, and then what we recognize to be wrong and corrupt in us, that gap, this is where we are seeking to learn what it means to walk by faith. Faith in God's grace to forgive us and change us and lead us toward holiness in all of our lives, including our sexuality. And I would invite you today, if you are not a follower of Jesus, to come join us on that journey of walking by faith. God is good his design for you and your sexuality is good. He is holy. He can be trusted. And he sent his son, Jesus, to make a way to bring you back to him. And yet Jesus, Jesus himself said this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. The biggest problem in your life is not your sexual sin. Paul says back in verse five, the biggest problem, the root problem of all of it is that you are alienated from the God who made you and loves you and knows how you work best. Your biggest problem is unbelief. So what I want to hear from me is not go clean up your act. What I'm saying is come, know this God through Jesus Christ. He will call you to deny yourself, to give up your right to determine what you think is good and best for you. He says it will feel like death daily. But whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. This hard, holy path is the path to true life forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the goodness of your design. Thank you that you know our brokenness. You know our weakness. You know how we've been corrupted even better than we do. And yet you have called us to holiness. You have made us holy. You will perfect us in holiness. Would you give us faith to trust you, to shape the overall character of our lives, to match up with your righteous, holy character, including in our sexuality. As we continue to have conversation as couples and community groups on the podcast and so forth, God, would you give us grace? You know our brokenness. You know our weakness. Protect us from pride. Protect us from gossip. Protect us from self-righteousness. And yet, Jesus, you've told us that one of the fruit of your spirit is self-control. 
Would you guide us by your grace to greater self-control that we might display you well to those around us? We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.